in a manner of speaking. A monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 44, September 2021. Let's talk. A conversation with David Crystal. Hello again, Paul Meyer here. Welcome. Let's dive straight into our quiz this time. Guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. There was once when I was little, and it was April, probably the very end of April, almost early May, when I was 13, and we had a tremendous snowstorm that shut down the town for four days, and cars were buried, and it was like 10 feet of snow or something ridiculous, and there was actually a moose that was walking down Main Street. I did give you some clues last time. Yes, it's North America. Yes, the USA. But which state did you guess? If you narrowed it down to North Dakota, congratulations, it was Ideas North Dakota 1, a young woman from Bismarck. I recorded her in 2002. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? Um, I'd like to go on holiday next year. I would really like to go to the States. Yeah, that's my ambition, to get to New York. Um, But... I don't really know. Gary's asking me to go to Ireland. <laughs> he thinks it'll be a good idea if me, him and his mates and somebody else went to Ireland for a weekend or, you know, a little break. Um, but I'm not too sure about that. Get the answer next time. My guest today is my old friend David Crystal. This is the third time he has appeared on In a Manner of Speaking. Today we'll be conversing about conversation itself. The subject of Let's Talk, one of his recent books. Professor Crystal has been interested in conversation analysis throughout his 57-year publishing history. In fact, he published Advanced Conversational English in 1976, now out of print but republished and revised in 2019. These are just two of the astonishing 159 books he has published in his six-decade career. For our conversation, I found him at home in Hollyhead, North Wales. David, welcome back. This is our third outing together on In a Manner of Speaking. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a <laughs> delight to be back with you after all this time. I've just finished Let's Talk, and it's a wonderful book, and I'm going to highly recommend it to our listeners. And uh, uh, and I realized it may be the only book I've ever read about conversation analysis. It, it is a newish field for linguistic study, yes? Well, you're right when you say you might not have read another book on it, because that's, of course, precisely why I wrote this one. I've been asked repeatedly in recent years, is there a kind of general introductory book to conversation, what it is, how it works, that taps into the research that's been done in this field? And and I had to say, well, I can't think of one, to be honest. Unless you count your 1976 Advanced Conversational English, which you've just republished, right? Oh, that, yes. Well, that was written mainly with uh, second language learners in mind. Yes. um, And was a very simplified introduction to just certain aspects of the business. And you're right, this was 1976. Now, this was before the huge field of, well, it's variously called conversation analysis, discourse analysis, text analysis, text linguistics, discourse linguistics, all these terms are around. In the last 30 years or so, there's been a huge amount of research into the nature of conversation. We, we didn't have that in 76, but it's out there now. So I was able to use it quite a lot for this particular book. You call Cicero the, the father of conversation analysis, but really it's, it is a, a rather new thing, isn't it, as you say? Well, it's new in the sense that it's it's not been subjected much to analysis. And there's a very simple reason for this. The kind of informal conversation that all our listeners now do most of every day, simple chat, natural, spontaneous chat. Well, how do you get at it, you see? If I go up to somebody with a microphone and say, excuse me, can I have an example of natural, spontaneous conversation, please? (laughs) Start now. (laughs) We all know what's going to happen. So how do you get at it? And this has been the problem. That's why the field really didn't start until quite late 
in linguistics because people didn't have a clue about how to get now not just recordings but good quality acoustic quality recordings yes. because some of the features are very subtle indeed well those problems have been solved now very largely and there are lots of lots of jolly good data out there in in you know various contexts so the field has moved on so really it's with the advent of our ability to record human speech in the first place and the difficulty of obtaining good, authentic, natural, spontaneous conversation for our research data, right? That's right. I mean, the recordings I made in 1976 were cleverly done to get the people involved, natural and spontaneous and yet yes. good quality. Yeah. Uh, shall I tell you how we did? Yes, yes. I was going to say, it's such a fun story. Tell us yeah, how, you, well, how you coped with it <laughs> ethically and practically. Well, ethically, indeed, you see, there was a time in linguistics when people would hide the microphone, you know, behind a curtain or under a table or something. And that was a bit ethically dubious. Also, the acoustic quality was awful because <laughs> the curtain mm -hmm. got away or the people would hammer the table and it was terrible. No, what I did was I asked friends very largely to come around to our house. So come along to the house this evening and let's have a, have a chat. I'm, I'm very interested in your voice, I would tell them. I love your accent. Well, you know, Paul, as soon as you say that to somebody, people go, oh, really? Oh, yes, of course I'll come. You know? Yes. So they come around and I prepare the room. So in front of every armchair in the room, this sort of room for four, there's a microphone on the stand. And they sit down looking very dubious at this microphone and it's very near their mouths. There's a tape recorder in the middle of the room. And I say, look, this isn't going to take long. I just want to record you counting from one to 20 in your lovely voice. And that'll be it. So I turn the tape recorder on and off you go. And they go, you know, one, two, three, and so on. Get to 20, whatever it is. And they all do this. And then I turn the tape recorder off. And I say to them, right, that's it. Come on, well, let's have a drink. And there we go. And they sit back and they relax. And they don't move the microphone, of course, because it's not in their way or anything. Oh, and about 10 minutes later, sorry, guys, I had to make a phone call and I have to leave the room. Sorry, I'll be back as soon as I can. So I leave them to it. Of course, that phone call takes half an hour and I apologize when I get back. Well, of course, as all you listeners out there have probably already guessed, the microphones were not attached to the tape recorder in the middle of the room at all, but were attached to a different tape recorder that was turning away in the kitchen. <laughs> so, you know, I got super quality recordings of a totally natural kind. And then the ethical question at the end of the evening, I would say to them, well, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry guys, but uh, let me tell you what was really going on. And I would tell them, and I would give them the option of deleting the recordings if they wanted. Well, nobody ever deleted. They, they, they just said, oh, really? Yeah, of course, we might've guessed. <laughs> uh, the only uh, constraint was that I was made to promise that whenever I met them ever again in the future, it would be me to pay for the round of drinks. <laughs> and, and, you're, and you're still doing it to this day, right? And I'm still doing it today. <laughs> Those that are still alive, at least, I'm still doing it today. But it did mean I got stunning quality recording, very natural, and that is what fed the 1976 book. Well, since then, of course, people have been doing other techniques I mean, these days, recording, Paul, is, is so much more natural, isn't it? I mean, young people of today, they record each other all the time on yes. their little phones and everything. They seem much less self-conscious about much it. Much less self-conscious. Yeah. Okay. So you managed to get great, um, great data. Good. Fabulous. Yeah. Uh, and surprising data. That's the thing. Yes. Yes. And, and those, those um, clips are downloadable and listenable to... Uh, as you read the book, you can go to davidcrystal.com, right? And, um, and uh, oh, yes, listen if you want to, to actually, if you want to actually hear those recordings, because I, I dug them out, you see, for Let's Talk as well. Mm -hmm. they, they, they haven't aged in the, well, what is it, 1976? 50 years you know, or so. Right. They really haven't aged. The subject matter has changed, of course. Uh, people weren't, aren't talking today about what they were talking about then. But the linguistic structure of the conversations is exactly the same today as, as it was then. So you can listen to these recordings. Yes, you, you go to my website and under publications, scroll down to the book, Advanced Conversational English, and that's where you'll find them. Just click on there and you, all the recordings will come up. Yes, and you spend a good good deal of time 
analyzing the conversations that you captured so deviously and cleverly. Well, yes. There was so much of a surprise. I mean, every aspect of the linguistic business was novel in some ways, in pronunciation, in grammar, and in vocabulary. In, mm. in pronunciation, it was much faster than the sort of thing that you imagine conversation to be. The sort of thing you get when you listen to conversations in a language learning uh, program, for instance, or even on stage yes. or on television. You know, there are conversations there all the time, but they, they, they were much slower. This was very, very fast at times. And of course, some of the interesting phonetic features came out of that. And yet we have no difficulty following those conversations. And and I, I use that kind of observation about the speed of conversation. I mean, I'm listening to the speed at which I'm going now, at, you know, and you are going at a tremendous rate. And when we're, when I'm directing or coaching uh, films or plays, it seems absolutely essential that the the tempo uh, and, and all the other linguistic features of real conversations be be put into practice in the artistic stage or film presentation. Well, yes. Uh, the interesting thing for linguists, of course, is how do you measure this thing of speed? Um, what you don't do is count words per minute uh, because words are of different lengths, and so that doesn't work. No, you have to count syllables per minute. And you and I are talking now at the rate of about 300 syllables a minute. Mm. And if we were to start talking at 250 syllables a minute, it would now sound something like this. Yes. And if we were to talk at 200 syllables a minute, it would now sound something like this. And this is the speed at which you will hear the news read, for example. Yes. Good evening. This is the news, and it's David Crystal reading it at yes. 200 syllables a minute. <laughs> Back to 300 syllables a minute, and it sounds much more natural immediately, doesn't it, Paul? Yeah. And that's yeah. the point. But on, in my tapes, I was hearing fragments of conversation that were going up to, ooh, 350 or 400 syllables a minute, only for a short period of time. Yes. yes. Somebody would say something like, well, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I wouldn't have been able to do that. I wouldn't have been able to. Wouldn't have been able to. Well, yes. that's really, really fast. And of course, nobody speaks like that all the time. No. But there were little fragments where that sort of speed was coming out. Yes, yes. Very instructive for actors, for directors, for, for, for coaching. Because, I mean, other than your corpus and perhaps the Santa Barbara one and then some other corpora, we've relied on films and plays and transcripts of plays to and novels to convey to us what we think we think about conversation, don't we? Yes, that's the tradition indeed. And the poor old people who are learning a foreign language, whether it's English or the foreign language or yes. whatever, without this kind of broader perspective, they do have listening comprehension problems when they encounter real conversation for the first time, having only had the slower, more structured conversation in classrooms. Yes, I remember my first time in Italy having taught myself Italian from the Berlitz book, you know? yeah. and I couldn't have a conversation with an Italian to save my life. Well, I can see that and raise you because uh, I had exactly the same experience in Spain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and in France too. Never forget my first encounter with real French people at a, uh, at a uh, youth camp in, in the Swiss Alps. Yeah. And all my school French went out of the window. I mean, for a start, half of them were Algerians, so they weren't speaking Parisian French at all. I was having real trouble. <laughs> Very inconsiderate of them, right? Yes. <laughs> the book well, is great, yeah. and you, you cover conversation from top to bottom, the, the history of it, the, the thrill of it, the joy of it, the, the techniques of it. We can't visit all of the wonderful topics that so invigorated me, but we'll try to hit on a few in our time together today. Above all, it got me thinking about the thrill of good conversation and how, how exhilarating it is uh, to have a, a close friend, a good friend who, who you can just chat for hours and hours and you, know, you don't know where the conversation is going to lead. Uh, you don't know what topics are going. It's a really a real adventure and, and the, the lead switches from one to the other. And sometimes it's as if no one's leading the conversation no one's following it it's like a great team sport or something where the players are in the zen of it yeah you you use the metaphor of sport i i, I actually use the metaphor of drama in the book it is the most dramatic uh, encounter we ever have apart from going to see a play or something of that mm. sort 
a drama in which we're all playing a part, but with no script. And the unpredictability of the subject matter is the defining feature of conversation. At any point in a conversation, somebody can say to somebody else, oh, that reminds me, do you know? And off they go in a completely mm. unpredictable direction. Uh, and the linguistic question, of course, is how we manage this. How do we control <laughs> this turn-taking? What are the cues we give to each other to say, yes. uh, let's go in a different direction? Like the one I just used a few seconds ago. Oh, that reminds me. Yeah. You know, that, that's a, a typical little phrase that people can use. And there are many others like this. And only by analysing real conversation can you find out what they are. Do you think playwrights spend enough time? I mean, obviously, when playwrights write plays, they're not trying to, to do real life. They're producing an artistic artifact, and it's, it's the illusion of real conversation. But do you, do you think playwrights should study conversation analysis a lot more than they do? Well, I don't think they do at all, and there's no, in a sense, there's no reason why they should. Uh, they've obviously all got good ears uh, on that particular skill, which comes with writing a conversation which is totally plausible mm -hmm. um, and does indeed sound like a real conversation. But when you actually analyse it, I mean, take Harold Pinter, for instance, who a reviewer once said had a tape recorder for an ear. Mm. Well, that, to my mind, was the biggest insult you could offer a, a dramatist. Uh, you just write down what you hear. No, no, no. Everything's structured. Everything's created in, a, in an organised way. The stuff that you put in has a purpose. And Pinter's conversations are hugely crafted things. Mm -hmm. And yes. the contrast um, can be precisely specified when you make a comparison of some sort. We'll give you one example. In everyday conversation, we make a huge use of what the grammarians call comment clauses. Now, these are things like, you know, you see, I mean, mind you, trouble is, as a matter of fact, and all those little linking phrases are the oil which makes a conversation flow smoothly. Now, these are very, very frequent indeed. And people will sometimes overuse them in a way. So they're frequently used. Now, you show me a script by any dramatist which reflects that frequency of comment clauses in the dialogue. And you won't find one. Mm -hmm. They're hardly ever used in Pinter, for instance. Yes, yes. And an editor would probably strike through what they consider redundant, uh, irrelevant stuff like that, right? Well, I suppose, I suppose so. Um, I mean, the thing about a an everyday conversation, it's domestic subject matter. It would be boring if we put that on the stage without any craft yes. behind it to give us an insight into some point about character or plot or atmosphere or whatever it happens to be. And one of the things that does make a conversation boring when you listen to it as an analyst, I mean, as an analyst, it's not boring, of course, because you're analysing. But yes. if you're listening to it as a kind of um, uh, fun activity, you very quickly you see the eyelids drooping because, A, you're not part of that conversation. You, right. you, you haven't anything to give to that conversation. You, mm -hmm. you haven't anything to take out of it because it's not your conversation. Yes. And so the, the domesticity of it, that makes it really rather uninteresting. You cite in the book what you call the first recorded English conversation. Tell us about that. Yes, that's my, my phrase for it, though I think it's quite often used by others. This is Bishop Abbot Alfrich. Uh, that's the Old English symbol A-E, L-F-R-I-C, Alfrich. And he wrote in the 10th century, the end of the 10th century, beginning of the 11th century. And he uh, compiled a book called, which, which is called his Colloquy. Now, a colloquy was a, a structured kind of dialogue for teaching purposes. So if I wanted to teach you Latin, as indeed was Alfred's uh, case, you, you would write down a dialogue in which the Latin expressions turned up and you'd learn the Latin, as it were, by repeating the dialogue to the teacher and repeating it to your colleagues, your, your fellow students, and so on. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this particular colloquy, which was written uh, at the beginning of the 11th century uh, in Latin, was given a gloss by somebody. When you look at the manuscript, what you see is the Latin words, and above it, 
written in tiny lettering, the Old English translation of that Latin dialogue. Mm -hmm. and, and this is what's been, you know, separated out and published separately as an Old English text called Alfred's Colloquy. You now, mean, let me just read you a little extract. In Old English, right? Well, I'll do in Old English and then um, I'll leave the Latin out and just translate it into uh, modern English. Okay. I mean, some of the dialogue is, is really not a conversation at all. It's a teaching tool. Yeah. For example, at one point, somebody says, are you a fisherman? And the guy says, yes. What do you fish? And then he gives a long list of fish, you see. And the aim was to get students familiar with the Latin expressions, Latin words for these different types of fish. So that's a bit dull. But listen to this little bit of dialogue in the, uh, in the middle. The teacher says to the student, is this one of your friends? Is that of thinum yeferum? And the guy answers, says, yeah, he is. Now, yeah, he is. Sounds like modern English, doesn't it? But it's yeah. old English. Yeah, he is. Can't do anything, says the teacher. Do you know how to do anything? Have you got, uh, have you got any work you can do? Oh, Anna Kraftich can. One craft I can do. Huilchner, says the teacher. Which? Hunter, ich am. A hunter, I am. Quas, who's, who's hunter? King's, the king's hunter. Now, just take those, you know, half a dozen expressions. That could be a modern English conversation, couldn't it, Paul? Yes. I mean, it's just absolutely natural. Elliptical sentences, short sentences, quick give and take. English conversation hasn't changed that much in a thousand years. Yeah. Interesting. Your modern translation, the teacher asks him, uh, would you like to catch a whale? And the student says, oh, not me. Why not? Because it's a dangerous thing to catch a whale. It's safer for me to go to the river with my own boat than go hunting whales with many ships. I can turn that into very plausible conversational style. Yes, you can read this stuff and make it sound very colloquial and very modern indeed. Great. I want to talk about the huge differences between written style and spoken style. And when I first formed the IDEA website, it was incumbent upon me to transcribe the unscripted speech of the subject and get that done on paper. And it was enormously difficult. I kept trying to, to make complete sentences of it and, and, and realized the, the huge difference between the way we actually talk and the, and the way we are taught that language should go. Such an enormous difference. Yes, we write in sentences. We speak in what? In chunks, in yeah. units that are not sentences at all. But they are linked to each other by a whole panoply of, oh, conjunctions and linking features and those comment clauses I mentioned and so on. Uh, it goes like this. I say to you, hey, Paul, look, the other, I went down to town the other day and I, I wanted to buy this coat. And I went into the shop and I spoke to this lady and she said to me, uh, what sort of coat do you want? And I said to her, well, um, I'm not sure because uh, it's a long time since I bought a coat. So, so she goes into the back and comes out with a whole range of coats and says to me, why don't you, and, and I say to her, and she says to me, and I say to her, that kind of sentence, and it's still the same sentence going it is. on. Yes, it is. Could take a minute or two minutes or more. And nobody cares because it's perfectly intelligible. Each chunk of meaning is self-contained and leads on to the next with a word like and or something like that. And we process it bit by bit by bit. We do not process sentences as wholes in spoken English, unless it's very formal, of course. And then, of course, we do. I love to read Dickens precisely because the entire paragraph could be one complete sentence. But Oh, Absolutely. And that's a feature of his, his style and a very big feature of Victorian English as a whole. But these days, you're not so likely to find that kind of really complex sentence construction. I mean, you'll never get it online, for instance. And uh, online has influenced offline so much these days that uh, people are, I mean, you go to, a, go to blogs, for instance, where there is no short messaging constraint and you look at the sentences there. Well, when blogging first started, there were indeed some long Dickensian sentences there, but you hardly ever see them like that these days. Mm -hmm. When I'm 
teaching actors to turn the rhythms of written text into the rhythms of spoken text, it's often a very good technique to simply uh, kill all the punctuation so that they have a better chance of putting that text into the the rhythmic units of spoken English. Well, absolutely. I mean, punctuation is, in a sense, uh, irrelevant. Punctuation is a, a set of graphic conventions that were invented by people very often with grammar in mind rather than the phonetics of the voice in mind. Actors are often seduced by the punctuation and feel that they have to breathe at the commas or something like that. It's Oh, and, and well, didn't they used to be? Uh, recommendations in the old days well, going back to the 18th century, actually, where the whole business was uh, mathematically quantified. You, you know, a, a comma is one beat, a semicolon is two beats, a colon is three beats, a whole stop is four beats, and so mm. on. And people scrupulously followed it. And what an awful rendition they came out with as a result. Another form of the tyranny of the written language, perhaps, over the oral. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, written language has been tyrannous in that, that respect. This is the big thing about the 18th century uh, and the prescriptive grammarians that came along then. Written language was the only viable form. Spoken language was a, was a poor cousin, and anything that speech did that didn't conform to writing was considered not just inelegant, but, but incorrect. And so you were condemned if you came out in your writing with some you know, colloquial kind of phrasing. And conversely, if you went to school in those days and actually in living memory for many people, me, for instance, if you went to school and you uh, spoke without respecting the norms of the written language, you'd be told off or even beaten. So, you know, how, how dare you end a sentence with a preposition, you know, yes. saying something like, this is the man I was talking to, instead yeah. of this is the man to whom I was talking, you know? This was said to be incorrect, even though, of course, it's a usage that goes back to Old English and Shakespeare used it. Yes, yes. I'm wondering if perhaps the tyranny of the written word might come to an end at some point. Uh, I'm thinking of the way that politicians in their public speaking coaching are taught by people like me to speak in much smaller rhythmic units, to emulate the rhythms of spoken English. Perhaps the, the old idea of eloquence as mimicking the rhythms of written language, uh, perhaps that tyranny is coming to an end and, and, and we're going to reverse those many centuries? Yeah, I'd like to think so. And there is indeed some evidence of this. Uh, certainly when you compare, we now have, of course, audio recordings going back 100 years. Uh, and when you compare the speech patterns of the politicians from the early part of the 20th century with politicians today, there are some you know, dramatic differences in style, which some politicians uh, take to extremes. I mean, a good example is your own Donald Trump. Now, you know, regardless of the politics of him and whether you like him or hate him or anything, his speech style was much, much closer to the norms of conversational English than I think anybody else, certainly by contrast with Barack Obama. And people used to say, didn't they, about Trump? Well, he speaks like us. Yes. Um, and you ask the question, well, what was it in his speech that made it like us? And the answer was, he would use lots of comment clauses of the, you know, you see, I mean. He would use lots of colloquial address forms like folks, hey, folks. He would repeat himself a lot, which, of course, was condemned by his opponents. But it's the sort of thing that you and I do in everyday conversation. You know, I say to you, so I, I went down to buy a coat. I needed a coat. Gosh, I did need that coat. I really did. And so I went to get one the other day. I went to get this coat. Yeah. I've said the same thing five times there. Yes. But in everyday conversation, that sounds perfectly normal. What is abnormal is to hear that sort of thing said on the political podium. Yes. Uh, and, of course, that's where the controversy uh, came from. But, yes, I, I do believe I hear it in this country as well, that there's a much greater naturalness. Boris Johnson is a very good example, a much greater naturalness in speech-making and in interviews. Yes, exactly. Turn-taking. Let's talk about turn-taking in conversation. The, conver the unwritten conversational rules, and there are so, so many of them, we're completely unaware of them, but there are some 
unwritten rules about taking your turn and 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 they they vary from gender to gender perhaps or culture to culture uh, generation to generation well certainly culture to culture haven't found that many differences of a gender kind but you're quite right that, that these are unwritten well does one call them rules or trends or tendencies or protocols <laughs> yeah the thing is a lot of these unwritten rules have had a bad press and people have condemned them without really realizing what they are i'll give you a couple of examples one is the notion of interruption go online and type in interruptions and you will be told quite unequivocally it's bad to interrupt you must not do it it's impolite it's distracting it's terrible never interrupt woof well and that's absurd I mean, isn't it really yeah i mean that might... <laughs> thank you for that interruption paul interruptions of that kind are actually reinforcing what the speaker is saying it's not interrupting to make a different point which is what might happen in a in a debate or something of that kind where indeed it would be bad form to interrupt in that way but no in everyday conversation people interrupt each other all the time in the sense like you've just done they, somebody's chattering away and somebody says oh yes i, I know exactly what you mean it reminds me of um, of what i did last year mm-hmm. and the other person stops talking briefly acknowledges the point and then either carries on because the interruption has simply reinforced what was being said or says oh no remind me and and passes the turn over to the other person now interruption happens all the time in these everyday conversations that uh, that i recorded absolutely normal it's not a bad thing it's actually a very helpful thing a reinforcing mm. interruption rather than uh, you know a debating one Yes. So that's one example. Yes. And another example is the use of laughter. Yes. This surprised me greatly, I must say. Now I ask all you listeners out there, why do you laugh? And I bet the answer that's coming into your mind is because somebody has said something funny. Not so. Well, not so. Uh, the number of jokes in the conversations I recorded, you could count on the fingers of one hand. Um, I mean, people do occasionally make a funny remark, and people laugh at it. But no, there is laughter all over the place amongst a group of people who are getting on well, of course. And the laughter might be a, a full-blown laugh, or it might just be a giggle. So somebody says to somebody, "I, I uh, had real trouble on that boat the other day," and the other person says, oh, "Yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had a similar sort of thing <laughs> when I went on the boat the other week as well." and the laugh is there underneath the surface all the time and what it is is it's a sympathetic laugh it's it's a laugh of rapport yes and is taken as such nothing to do with humor at all and this kind of thing is very very common yeah yeah phatic communion that was i i love to read your stuff because i get new words p h a t i c phatic am i pronouncing it correctly yes you are indeed a term that the anthropologist Bertil Malinowski cooked up way back in the 1920s to refer to the the initial part of a dialogue when people are not saying anything important but just sort of getting to know each other or just passing the time of day or not wanting to know each other but feeling that it's incumbent on them to say something otherwise it might appear to be rude so it's not content based although of course there are some subjects that phatic communion uh, frequently uses Yes, you know, phatic is a is a Greek word actually. It means related to speech or something to do to maintain social relationships in speaking to each other. Mm. Phatos meaning spoken. It, it's from the the Greek word phatine to say. But but an interesting term uh, and when the anthropologists introduced it it was very quickly taken up by linguists because they didn't have a term for for this sort of uh, uh, preliminary to a real conversation and the interesting question of course is what do people talk about in phatic communion well the usual thing of course is to ask about the health isn't it you know hi how are you oh fine thanks how are you oh fine and then you go on <laughs> of course that's a good example of a change in phatic communion because uh, since covid arrived 
people don't ask that question anymore in a no. casual way. They mean it, don't they? They actually mean it. It's content-based now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So people talk about the weather a lot. That's a very common one in, in Western culture, though not all over the world. You know, yes. there are other topics that other cultures have. Oh, tell the story of your time in, I think it was Japan, was it China, where silence was much more uh, valued? Oh, yes, indeed. Well, silence is, of course, bad news in a conversation in our culture, isn't it? Yes. We talk about an awkward silence, uh, the need to fill the silence. If there's a silence in a conversation, people don't feel right. Something's gone wrong. Yes. But in other cultures, not necessarily so. And yes, um, you're reminding me of a time when I was in Japan, it was. And uh, I was uh, visiting a bookshop where I was giving a talk. And afterwards, there was a, we were all invited into the um, manager's office, where sitting in a big circle around the room was uh, me and my wife, Hilary, and the um, bookstore manager and the owner of the bookstore and the floor manager and the sales assistant. It was quite a big group. And we're all, we're all sitting there and the tea is poured out and we sit there. And there's a silence like that. And I don't quite know, because this was my first time in Japan. I didn't know, you know, I wasn't sure what to do. And I thought, oh, I better, better say something. So I, so I start to say something ridiculous because I didn't know what I should be saying. And I, I just said, well, I hope my books have been doing well today or something like that. And they would all nod and stay silent. And then eventually one of them made a remark about the bookstore and how it was doing. And indeed, there was a hierarchical order. The owner spoke first and then the manager and so on, you know, and the sales assistant spoke last. And then a little later on, there was another silence and it gradually dawned on me. And it only took me a little while later to check up with some local people that I knew. that there's nothing odd about that at all. If you haven't got anything to say, then you don't say anything. You don't have to fill that silence. And indeed, silence is good because it gives you the moment of reflection that you need in order that when you do start speaking, you say something sensible and serious and don't mess about. <laughs> you know. So you can imagine the cultural conflict that there can be in a business meeting, for instance, when there's English on one side of the table, English people and Japanese people on the other, and the English people are saying, let's get on with it, let's get on with it, let's get on with it, and the Japanese people are going, and there's this uncertainty then about the nature of the relationship. So the more people understand about cultural differences in conversational style, the better, it seems to me. Yes, yes. Up talk. You made a spirited and very cogent defense of many things which are routinely dismissed and criticized, uh, up talk being one of them. And yet you, you, you said it can fill so many different purposes, like like the word like. So I, I'm bracketing up talk and like in get, and getting you to depart from the usual media condemnation of these newfangled, new tuners of accents. Mm. Well, the thing is, uh, they're not new. They may be new in frequency, but they're certainly not new as far as the phenomenon is concerned. There are references to what we're calling up talk in the 18th century. There's a book by a man called Joshua Steele called The Melody and Measure of Speech, in which he actually writes down intonation patterns in a musical notation. And one of them is up talk. And he actually talks about it and says, and he doesn't like it. He doesn't mm -hmm. like it either. And he says so. And so what are we talking about? We're talking about a statement which is ending in a rising intonation, often a high rising intonation. We're not talking about questions or anything like that, which often have those rising intonations anyway. We're talking about statements which end with this high rise. Why do people do it? Well, it is getting a bad press because people, when you overuse something in language, whether it's written or spoken, it tends to distract and tends to irritate, especially when... And wear out its welcome, I suppose. Well, people are coming from a different background, a different milieu, a different regional dialect, different regional accent, different social class, different age, perhaps. And certainly this uptalk became frequent, not originally amongst young people. It was originally noticed, I can date it absolutely precisely, 
1980. How do I know? Uh, because I was in Australia at the time at a speech pathology conference and I was being interviewed by Australian radio and I expected them to ask me questions about the speech pathology conference and all they wanted to know about was this new pattern of speech that was coming in from New Zealand that was hitting Australia at the moment and it was this mm. uptalk, you see. Mm -hmm. And then it went across the, uh, the world through you know, Australian soaps and things into British television and then linked up with another trend in uptalk which had already existed in the United States over in California. Okay, you know, uh, Val speak and all of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. that trend came and joined up with the New Zealand type of uptalk. And for either reason, whatever the reason, young people thought this was very, very cool indeed. And the reason why they felt it was cool was two reasons. First of all, it was a rapport feature. It bonded them. If I say to you, Paul, I live in Hollyhead. What am I doing? I'm saying to you, I'm telling you this place, Paul. I don't know whether you know it or not. My intonation is saying to you, do you know this place? Yes. I could have said to you, Paul, I live in Hollyhead. And assume you know it uh, but then you might say sorry Dave where's Hollyhead and I then have to explain no no I bypass all that I live in Hollyhead gives you the opportunity of saying no I don't know where that is or just nodding and then I carry on it makes you sound more considerate of my understanding that's right hence it's a bonding thing that's why the kids loved it because your mates together if all the others are nodding at you while you are speaking to them and you are nodding while they are speaking to you because the up talk is saying, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Then this is a group solidarity function. And that's why it became so popular. And it's no longer a young people phenomenon. Uh, I mean, it's gone up the age range. I've heard Indeed. all sorts of people use it now. I don't think I use it yet. <laughs> oh, I bet you do from time to time. Anyway, that's a thought. And, and you mentioned like. Now, like is, a, is another thing that has a history to it. More difficult to track it down because it is indeed a conversational feature. So you're only likely to find it in those texts which are really scrupulous about uh, representing conversation. And there aren't very many of those in the 19th century. But in the 20th century, you can see it bubbling along until it becomes really very, very popular now, especially amongst young people. Now, what is it? Well, it has a whole range of functions, but the most important one is summarized by its technical description. It is often called quotative-like, quotative. In other words, it introduces a quotation. And here's, the here's an example. If I say to you, so, uh, I went like, oh, no. Write that down. How would you write it down? And you would write down, I went, inverted commas, oh, no, close the inverted commas. What like does is it replaces the inverted commas. Mm -hmm. It warns the listener that there's a quotation about to come up. So I went like, oh, no. It's different from, I went, oh, no. It, it, it gives the listener that little clue that there's a quotation coming. Now, you might say, uh, why don't you just say, uh, he said, oh, no. Well, the reason is that like has suddenly developed, well, not suddenly, but, you know, over the time has developed a much wider remit. You got me thinking in a completely different way. That was, that was wonderful. <laughs> of course, if it's overused, then it will get irritating. Yes, and that's the point. You yes, see. if you're having a conversation about liking and loving. <laughs> <laughs> and it could get ambiguous too. And he like likes me and I like 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 him. I don't know. Yeah. What did Google do in 2016 with feeding novels to computers to improve their conversational skills? And how would you train an AI machine to mimic human conversation? You talk about Alexa and Siri and say we're, we're light years away from real machine-generated conversation. Yeah, we, we certainly are. We're a long, long way from that. And the reason is, of course, that 
the people, the programmers, and so on. Well, first of all, they don't feel it's necessary um, for the conversation to be that natural. And secondly, even if they did, they wouldn't know how to do it because they haven't done the analysis, you see. I mean, that's the point. That's one of the potential applications of conversation analysis, that one day those conversations will become much more natural, much more like, say, the conversation between Hal and Dave in 2001. Now, none of the robots are conversational in that kind of way. And whether they need to be or not is a separate issue and not one I can contribute to. But certainly there's, there is a huge difference at the moment between the kind of dialogue that you get with any kind of computer and the sort of thing we're talking about as, uh, as, a, as a real conversation. And in accent too, of course, you know, the accommodation between people that comes when, you know, I pick up a bit of your accent and you pick up a bit of mine. Well, Siri and Alexa don't do anything like that. But maybe they will. I have calls from time to time from companies like cruise ship operators who want AI devices in each stateroom, and they want to try to emulate the accent of all the different nationalities who might be traveling on that ship. So there is some interest in, in catering to the, to the accents of, of the participants. Yeah, this is, this is starting to happen. And indeed with GPS, you know, in your motor car, there's now a much greater choice, you know, male versus female, um, ethnic and yes. so on than there used to be. But the research is slowly building up here. Uh, I read a fascinating paper a few years ago about a piece of research in New Zealand where there was a, a set of medical, medical advice of some kind. And the advice was read to a group of participants in three accents, in a New Zealand accent, in a British accent, and an American accent. And basically, the participants were asked, which one do you believe? Well, no prizes for guessing, is it, Paul? Because, of course, they all said, well, the New Zealand accent. I mean, that's what they chose. That's the one I believe most. Yes. What came second was the British accent, I'm afraid. And what came third was very much, a very poor third was the American accent. <laughs> now, now, of course, you can see immediately how you could develop a whole raft of research studies. And I suppose this is going on where people will check on all the variables that will influence somebody's acceptance of an accent as being sincere, intelligent, and all the other things that we know associated with, with accents. So that is happening. And I think the same point applies to the conversational things we've been talking about, because, you know, are you more likely to believe somebody who says something in a very natural kind of way or in a very formal, stilted kind of way? Mm -hmm. you know, the same kind of difference will come up. Yes, yes. Well, David, this has been delightful. I, I wish we could visit so many more of the fascinating topics that you visit in Let's Talk, but uh, the constraints of our hour together are probably at, at their limit. Let's, let's finish by asking you to prognosticate. You've talked about the uh, history of conversation and to the extent to which we can ascertain that perhaps the conventions of conversation have pretty much been the same throughout the centuries and the millennia. What's its future, do you think? Can you gaze into your crystal, crystal ball? <laughs> well, I don't see any change likely whatsoever in the kind of everyday conversation we've been talking about. The changes are going to come as technology makes us change and introduces barriers to implement precisely that kind of conversational naturalness. Now, we could perhaps just end with uh, taking the example of what's happened during the pandemic because everybody has been talking on Zoom and other platforms of a similar kind. And the thing about that kind of interaction is that it denies us the option of using what is, I suppose, the most fundamental feature of conversation of all, and that is the existence of simultaneous feedback. Now, simultaneous feedback is when I talk to somebody and while I'm talking, they are giving me feedback of the kind, uh-huh, yeah, Mm, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, and, really. And, and nonverbal communication too. And nonverbal communication as well. Now, while I'm talking to you now, you are not doing this. 
And while you are talking, I am not doing this. And that's absolutely normal uh, for this kind of podcast. And it's absolutely normal for a Zoom conversation as well. Even if you're talking to people in your family or whatever it is, if there's even just one person, but even more if there's three or four or a lot of people on your screen, these people shut up while you're talking. They, they, they don't go, uh huh, mm -hmm, and all the rest of it. Partly because lag delays mm -hmm. the, the feedback, and partly because they don't feel able to. As a result, when you're get, having a conversation on Zoom, you are on your own. You are not getting that kind of feedback, which is telling you how you're doing, you know? And that's the reason, I think, why at the end of a Zoom conversation, we all feel a bit tired because we've had to concentrate so much. As time goes by, we might get more used to it and there may be new strategies that will come up to replace the lack of simultaneous feedback. All depends upon so many other factors of social evolution, doesn't it? Well, it does really. And, and the technology is, is king. Yes. Well, despite the limitations of Zoom, which we're using now, and the fact that we've had our cameras off to save, save our bandwidth for the audio, I, I've really enjoyed our conversation, David, if, <laughs> if, if we can well, call it a conversation. You. Thanks, Paul. And how do you end it? I mean, this is the other big thing. Starting a conversation is easy uh, because there's fatic communion and everything. How do you end it? Uh, people on Zoom and so on, and even in email conversations and, and WhatsApp and things like that, really do find it rather difficult. And in fact, uh, th this is one of the things that in, even in a face-to-face -face conversation is quite tricky. How many of you out there are having a conversation with somebody, it's coming to the end of the evening, it's time to go. How do you end the conversation? I mean, politely and friendlily and, and comfortably. Yes. And people develop strategies. The, the strategy is the strategy of second mention. Can we just talk about that briefly, Paul, before we yes, stop? Yes, yes, I love that. I love that section of the book, yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm chatting to you and, oh, it's time to, oh, I really must be going, we really must be going, we've, we've got this uh, thing to do, we, we'll have to leave. And then you don't go. Yes, see, just, as we're doing, just as we're doing now. I introduced a tentative conversation ender, didn't I? Yeah, uh, And right. we're continuing. Yeah, until the second time that somebody says after another few minutes have gone by, look, I really must go. And that's the point when everybody feels able to get up. It would be really rude, wouldn't it? If after the first mention, the host got up straight away and said, okay, go then, as it were. <laughs> that shouldn't happen. And yeah. so, yes, uh, you've had our second mention. We can conclude now. But what are we going to conclude with? Um, yeah. That's the other thing. Yes, goodbye or, or what, Paul? Uh, of course, with the COVID business, there is now surely one universal way of saying farewell to somebody. And that, of course, is to say Stay safe. Stay safe. Yes. Well, let's do that then. Let's choose that <laughs> as our conversational ending today. Stay safe, David. Enjoy, enjoy Hollyhead and the beautiful countryside of North Wales. And I'll do well. The same and you too, Paul. Thanks ever so much. It's been lovely chatting once again. And uh, look forward to the next time, whenever that might be. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Professor David Crystal. To learn more about him, please see the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. And if you haven't yet listened to the two other podcasts I did with him, one on received pronunciation and the other on pragmatics, I know you'll enjoy them. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter. My guest next month is the amazing audiobook narrator Elizabeth Wiley. We're going to talk about how great storytellers weave their magic spells over us. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>